Hello, Trash Crusaders. Welcome to Save Trash Cinema, the podcast where exploitation and exploration come together. It is I, your humble host, your guide through trash cinema, and your friendly neighborhood garbage can, Cayman Darty. On today's episode, we are delighted to bring to you a special interview with indie documentarian John Campopiano. He's fresh off the festival circuit with his new documentary, Snapper, the man-eating turtle movie that never got made. And we have him here today to discuss his work, the legacy of Snapper, and what we can learn from the films of yesteryear. But before we jump into that, let's do a little quick housekeeping. We'd love it if you rated and reviewed the podcast on the podcast app of choice. Don't forget, you could be on the show by emailing us your thoughts and questions to savetrashcinema at gmail.com, or you can DM us on Twitter at savetrashcinema or on Instagram at savetrashcinema as well. But without further ado, John Campopiano, everyone. Thank you so much, first and foremost, for coming on the show. It's a pleasure yeah, to have you here. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. So get started. You're an archivist, a filmmaker, and a writer. You've been the creative mind behind documentaries such as Unearthed and Untold, The Path to Pet Cemetery, Snapper, the man-eating turtle movie that never got made, and the upcoming documentary, Pennywise, the story of it. Not to mention you've been published on prestigious horror outlets such as Rue Morgue, Bloody Disgusting, Dread Central, and Fangoria. So I have to ask. What was the driving force behind your descent into the horror industry? Well, I mean, I've always been into horror films. Um, I'm an only child, but I had good friends in my neighborhood growing up who had older brothers that would, you know, rent these and show them to us um, at a far too young age. And so I think I've always been into horror films. And the though I was never into, like, filmmaking, I never saw myself as, like, going in that direction. But um, the Pet Cemetery documentary came about, and it was kind of like that film really traumatized me as a kid. And so I think my friend Justin and I made that film almost as like a, as a form of therapy, you know, to sort of like deal with the demons of our childhood and, and to finally confront Zelda and all the different things in that film that like really screwed us up as kids. Um, and, and that kind of started me on this journey of, of um, looking backwards, really. I mean, a lot of what I'm interested in has got to do with nostalgia and memory and, and childhood and, um, the same with it, you know, the miniseries, I grew up watching that and that terrified me as a kid. And so in some ways it's like me coping with those traumatic experiences by now revisiting these things as an adult and, and doing deep dives into the making of them and, and the themes behind the stories and all that stuff, talking to cast and crew, meeting people. Um, it's been a cool way to revisit it. So I think a lot of ways, the writing, all the articles I do, all the stuff that I'm a part of, it's really fueled by, um, in a lot of ways, childhood and memory and, and my personal connections to these stories. Right on, right on. So, you know, I kind of distinctly remember, at least for myself, too, like the old blockbusters. When I was growing up, we had it wasn't a blockbuster per se. It was just some old video like VHS rental store mm -hmm. in like a rundown supermarket. 
And so it was like always so exciting to me when you would go in and you'd find a movie that just had like the most insane cover art to it. And it was like, okay, can I get away with sneaking this past my parents? Because I definitely want to see what the hell is on this movie. And then half the time, half the time it was shit. So, (laughs) yeah, I I remember I remember really wanting to rent Street Trash just based on the cover alone and never got that one past my parents. I I never was able to uh, get them to sign off on that one. So it's actually funny you mentioned Street Trash. I actually have. So I collect, as you you know, obviously audio listeners can't, but I have a massive movie collection. Um, but I also collect like vintage uh, movie posters. Mm-hmm. And one of my prized possessions was getting an original Street Trash poster in the uh, 27 by 41 yeah. cut version. And so it was one that like I had to show the film to my fiance and tell her like, hey, you got to watch this movie. Street Trash is like one of the ultimate trash cinema films. And oh, we'll cover sure. it on the show in its entirety. But, you know, she once we watched it, she was like, 100%, you can get it. We can hang it up in the apartment. So <laughs> <laughs> I was privy enough to, to have that experience to to luck out and get that to hang. Yeah. Um, that's fantastic. So yeah. kind of want to get in more kind of the meat of mainly the reason we have you on the show today. And that is Snapper. Yeah. So you're hot off the festival circuit with, with the short documentary. Um, how did you get involved with a movie that was not only never produced outside of just a trailer, but yeah. ostensibly was lost to time? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because I had started like this work, like looking at films that are largely considered cult classics and then to mm-hmm. pivot and go to a film that was never actually a film is kind of a funny, a funny pivot to make. Um, Mark Voe and Mike Savino are the guys that tried to make Snapper. And they're better known for their cult film, uh, Attack of the Killer Refrigerator, which, um, and The Hook of Woodland Heights, both films are on the same tape and, and was distributed by Donna Michelle uh, Productions back in the in the late 80s. Now it's a coveted VHS. I mean, you know, copies sell for north of 900 bucks on eBay. So it's, it's like a, it's a collector's item among VHS enthusiasts. Um, of which I consider myself, but have never spent that kind of cash on a tape. But anyway, <laughs> sure. So I've known them for a while because I'm based in New England and they're out in Worcester, Massachusetts. And um, so I was interviewing them for Lunch Meat Magazine. Um, I was doing this deep dive retrospective about Attack of the Killer Refrigerator. And um, this was a few years ago. And at the end of the conversation, we were getting ready to go our separate ways. And Mark turned to me and he said, hey, you know, we tried to make a big uh, man-eating snapping turtle movie. And, and I was like, what? I was like, that sounds rad. Like, okay, that's, that's very cool. And, and then just, we went, I went home and he, you know, a couple of days later, he started texting me photos of this animatronic turtle head that they had built. And, and I was like, holy shit, man. Like they really went for it, you know? And he was like, we shot it on 16 millimeter. The whole idea was to make a trailer then to sell that, to get the movie financed. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. Like, and they, he's like, I have all the reels. Like they have all the materials. They were like really good, gatekeepers and curators of their own materials. So I was like, wow, okay, like maybe there's a story here, you know? I mean, it's hard to make anything um, and get it out into the world, you know? Like I think more projects fail um, before they go anywhere than films that get made and get seen by the public. Sure. So I felt like it was a, it could be a relatable concept. And, and I think a lot of us kind of grew up with like camcorders and whatever, trying to make our own home movies with our friends in the backyard and stuff. And yeah, absolutely. I, I never remember making a movie about a, a killer sock that attacked me and my parents. It was like a stop motion sock that crawled around our house and, and killed us. And 
a failed attempt to make a, a sequel to Clint Howard's Ice Cream Man when I was in middle school. But so I, you know, I could relate. I could relate to the idea that you know this is these guys were like grassroots DIY filmmakers just trying to make it, and having such a wealth of archive materials um, mm-hmm. between behind the scenes footage that they filmed on VHS, all the photos, all the the dailies, a lot of the sixteen millimeter footage that they filmed. I was like, man, maybe I could make a a short documentary about the making of this failed movie and, and kind of went into it, not knowing what the story was going to be. Um, just hoping it might work. Um, so. Yeah. It, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and I was lucky enough, uh, John, I shared with me a copy of the film so I could watch it myself. And I actually watch it a few times now uh, in preparation, just more out of fun because it is such a interesting look. Cause I think those are kind of stories we don't talk about. Right. Yeah, Like we don't address all of these movies that just never got past the starting line. Um, I think one of the biggest ones, at least in my head, is Guillermo del Toro was going to do uh, The Mountain of Madness, the Mm -hmm. H.P. Lovecraft. He was going to make that into motion picture. It just never got off the ground. There was issues with, uh, I think it was like Prometheus had come out right before they started Mm -hmm. filming. And he was like, this is very similar to that. Like, you know, outside of that, there's we don't talk about it. Right. We don't address it. It's I, so I think it's fantastic that you're able to capture that because there is so much there in so yeah, much history. I, I think it's interesting. I mean, you know, people that will see it, I, I, I hope the takeaway is that it's actually kind of a buddy story. Like it is about yeah. the turtle movie, but it's also like about these these two friends that have just been trying to make shit for like decades. And um, they're still like as enthusiastic about it now in their like late 50s as they were in their late, you know, teens early 20s um do you do you think um and i don't disagree at all with what you just yeah. said it very much is it's it almost feels like it's more the the documentary itself feels more like it's about the relationship between the two uh, co-directors yeah i think so yeah and i think that that's it's that's a very interesting look but like do you think a film like snapper could come out today do you think that that's like you know we've got other films like more recently like Zombievers and you do have, you know, things like, I think it was crawl space or maybe it was just crawl um, by uh, Asia. Was that Alexander Asia? Um, cool, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was a ton of fun. But do you think something like snapper, would it resonate? Do you think it would resonate today with audiences or is that something that just was very much a, like a time piece of, you know, late eighties, early nineties kind of craftsmanship. Mm. It's a good question. I, I definitely think it could be made today and there's definitely an audience for it. Um, and there's been some interest since Snapper has been on the festival circuit of like actually like finally getting this made and, and there haven't been any contracts signed, but people have approached myself and Mark and Mike be like, Hey, let's actually finally make it because they've got a script, you know, they've got a hundred, hundred page script. So the movie is there. Um, so I think there's definitely interest. I think one of the challenges with a lot of these kinds of films today is that, um, I think sometimes people set out to make a cult classic and it's mm-hmm. a little bit too self-aware, you yeah. know, there, there's something authentic about what they were trying to do and had they completed it, it probably would have been, it certainly would have been low budget. It probably mm-hmm. would have been cheesy and all the great stuff that we love about cult movies. And, um, but it would have been authentic. It would have been genuine, you know? Um, oh, for sure. So yes, it could be made today. Would it have the same sort of heart and authenticity that it may have had back in 1990? I don't know. Yeah. I know it's I I also love like the 16 millimeter shot. It's especially from like the ladies early 90s films. There's like that sort of graininess to it that like adds to 
I don't know. I don't want to say snuff film aesthetic, but yeah, it does. It, it adds this element. I was watching uh, a while ago. It was on Amazon Prime. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar. It's called Cards of Death. Um, it's an mm -hmm. old 80s film, all shot on 60 millimeter, but it's so dingy and the tapes are so worn out. There's this quality to it that just it just feels like you shouldn't be watching it. Yeah, like, yeah. There's something about this movie that's yeah. illegal and that we should not be watching it. And kind of watching the the footage from from Snapper, there's especially a lot of the behind the scenes footage. Yeah, um, there's definitely like a distinct quality there that just kind of leads lends credence to this. Like this is a forbidden tape. For like, sure. This was locked away for history. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of talking more about um, about Snapper, um, you know, you obviously got to interview, you got to look at all this footage yeah. and tapes and everything from the film. Like, what do you think you could take it like the filmmakers today kind of going back and watching, especially that you're an archivist? Like, what do you think we could like learn from some of these mis maybe mistakes or, you know, um, just what they were doing like how do you think that like indie filmmakers today can you know learn from that well i mean i think on a basic level i think we can look back and appreciate how hard it was to even make your own movie back then if you were trying to do it legit on film you know just the cost of, of yeah. shooting on film getting film developed um you know now we can shoot great looking stuff on our phones and um there's definitely an ease to it that they didn't have back in the day you know and then mm -hmm. just not even having the forums like a like a YouTube or and there was no shared place that you could upload your content to and potentially be discovered. You know, it was it was mailing stuff out um, and hoping that someone would open the package and, and give you a shot. You know, so I think that's one thing we can we can learn and sort of take away is just that uh, have an appreciation for people trying to make yeah. stuff 30, 40 years ago, um, you know, because it was a, it was a struggle and they were charging it to a credit card. You know, there was no, there was no Indiegogo. There was no crowdfunding. Sure. It was like, you want to yeah. make it, you know, um, you're paying your friends with pizza and beer and you're just trying to make it for the sake of making it, you know? Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know what people could look at snapper and learn from. I think they could look at it and appreciate that. Um, things were a lot harder back in the day, not to sound curmudgeonly like an old fuddy duddy, but you know, Oh, I mean, yeah. well, look, I mean, you have films that were nominated for Academy Awards, uh, films that were massive, like the Florida Project. Yeah. That was shot entirely on an iPhone. Uh, yeah. Tangerine is another one shot entirely on an iPhone. So I don't disagree with you there. I, I do think uh, it is a little bit, it is easier. And we have, I mean, we've got a, a, literally a computer in our hands at all times now. Yeah. So it is, it is easier to do that when, uh, so when you were working on snapper, you're, you're putting all this together. Like what is the process like for you when making, whether it's snapper or unearthed untold, or, yeah. you know, the upcoming Pennywise documentary kind of, what is your process? Like when you take on a new project, kind of, what is your, do you go into it with an end goal? Do you just kind of see where the creative movement takes you kind of, what is your process there? So like in terms of like the creative process, like finding the story. Yeah, sure. Um, I kind of think about like doc filmmaking in a way as sort of like archaeology, you know, like you've got mm -hmm. like the story is in there. There are there are stories in there and you just sort of need to like kind of do the work and sort of uncover it. I tend to go into like, you know, 
an interview session kind of open-minded, you know, I, I don't try to write the story too much, you know, like you sort of have a general roadmap for where you want to go. It's like, okay, we're going to tell the story of this, this man eating turtle movie that didn't get made. Um, we're going to probably look at why it didn't get made. You know, we're going to touch on those big um, tentpole uh, themes, but, but how we get there and how we kind of weave around that, that's, that's, I'm open-minded, you know? And so I'd rather, I shoot the interviews and sort of see where they go. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes I'm surprised, you know, and, and it goes in a direction that I don't expect, like the case for Snapper, you know, it's really kind of like a buddy story. Yeah. And by the end of it, I was more interested in these two guys and their perseverance and their just like positive attitude, you know, um, that than I was about the turtle per se, you know, so um, that's kind of that, that's my process, you know, um, I'm, I'm open minded and sort of let the story kind of carry me a little bit. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. So kind of moving off the of snapper, I'm, I'm curious because you have an upcoming uh, documentary coming out. It's going to be coming out on spring uh, on Screenbox, um, mm-hmm. which is an awesome streaming service. Uh, one yeah. of my personal favorites that I like to use, especially for more hidden gems. Sure. So with the upcoming documentary, Pennywise, the story of it, um, how did it feel tackling a property that not only has had a surge in popularity due to the recent films, but yeah. was essentially the ultimate nightmare fuel for an entire generation, particularly my generation. Sure. It felt great, man. I mean, kind of going back to what I said about the pet cemetery thing, it was sort of like therapy to, to revisit this, this uh, mini series. And, you know, it's one of those things kind of like pet cemetery as well. It's like one of the things that drove me to want to do that doc was that there was really no making of anything about pet cemetery, at least, you know, back in 2012, 13, when we did the, when we started on it. Um, and same with the miniseries. I mean, Tim Curry has been very quiet over the decades. Um, and and there really hasn't been any making of anything. You know, very few behind the scenes mm-hmm. photographs have been out in the public. Um, and so it was like this opportunity to, rather than do another documentary about Friday the 13th or Nightmare at Elm Street, which we all love, but it's been sure. to death. And so here's an opportunity to sort of inject some original content into the horror community and into the public that I thought there was an appetite for. and and Chris Griffiths and Gary Smart, my team on that, um, my partners on the it doc agreed, you know, there was an opportunity to fill a void there. So it felt fantastic. It was fucking great, you know, and to, to meet all of these people, um, and to uncover like behind the scenes footage and Bart Mixon was a big part of that. I mean, Bart Mixon is a special effects makeup legend. I mean, look him up. He's worked on everything from RoboCop to now he's working on all the Marvel movies. He's never stopped working and he's, you know, he's a legend and he had a wealth of archive that he made available to us, which made the doc, the doc possible in a lot of ways, um, hundreds of photos. Um, so it felt fantastic. And it's been a long journey. We shot those interviews in LA and Vancouver back in 2017 and now it's 2022. And so it's been a long journey, longer than we wanted. Um, COVID didn't help, um, but sure. we're here and we're grateful to Cynodyne um, for picking up the North American distribution rights and the, you know, they're planning on a summer release on Screenbox and elsewhere. So that's very exciting and, um, can't wait for people to check it out. That's incredible. So I have noticed kind of over your filmography, um, you have tackled at this point two Stephen King properties. Um, <laughs> is it the being from new England, being very much part of the, the Northeast where King does all sets majority if not all of his stories um do you feel more like more of a drive to that or was it more related just to the fact that kind of when you were growing up 
a lot of his work was being made into films for the first time? I think it's both. I think as I've kind of done more creative projects, I've really started to carve out a niche for myself in that I'm really interested in sort of New England-based stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that goes back to when I was a kid. I mean, you know, Jaws is probably my favorite film. And being, you know, growing up close to Martha's Vineyard where they filmed it, I mean, we, we could take a ferry over and, and step onto Amity Island and it looked exactly, you know, it looks exactly how it did in the film. And so I've always felt like a strong connection and deep roots to New England. And so obviously King is interwoven with New England lore and, and a lot, like you said, a lot of his stories are set here. Pet Cemetery was the first film actually shot here, um, which was a, a stipulation that he he made that if they were going to make Pet Cemetery into a film, they had to finally bring that money to Maine. Um, rather than film it in the Pacific Northwest and have it look like Maine. Um, so it's it's both. It's it's growing up here and, and sort of experiencing his films as a kid. And then also just being really interested in New England and coastal culture. And it's New England's a really cool, creepy, rich, interesting, beautiful place. And sure. there's no shortage of stories. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's both. For sure. So my question to you now is what are the odds that I can try to convince you to do a documentary on my personal favorite Stephen King film, Maximum Overdrive? Oh my God. You're the second person to bring that up. I have a, I have a, co- yeah. a former co-worker. Yeah, I have a former co-worker who's dying to do one. She's mentioned it to me over the years. She's now started her own business. So I think she's she's tied up. Um, but she's mentioned wanting to do it. I don't know. I, I don't really have an interest in going back to the Stephen King well. And not because I don't dig Maximum Overdrive, but I've done two now. and and. Um, I have some other things. I kind of want to keep swimming in the sort of lost film, forgotten film territory for a little while longer. I've got like a short doc sequel idea for Snapper, not Snapper related, but a lost, a lost film. Um, so we're kind of in pre-production on that. Ho- hopefully we'll shoot in the summer. Um, so just kind of piggybacking off that, then, yeah. how, how does one find lost films? Um, obviously digging through the internet might uncover some, but yeah. kind of, boots to the ground how how do you how do you uncover some of these more esoteric films that might have just been buried for decades at this point yeah and that's a good question i mean it, it is kind of boots on the ground it's just like good old-fashioned research a lot of it it's like you're sort of like uncovering old blogs or people people you know i saw this movie at the drive-in when i was a kid what is it or, or you know like concept art will finally you know like kind of make its way out into like the internet and um there was a rad book that came out this summer called Untold Horror. You should check it out. It's uh, buddies of mine up in Canada. And it's it's a book all about films that never ended up getting made. I mean, they, they look at Jaws 3, People Nothing, mm. the, the spoof film that they were going to do before Jaws 3D became a thing. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, talking to filmmakers like, oh, I had a concept for this or, you know, I was slated to do this film and it fizzled. So I, there's like ways of that information leaking out into the public. And then following up on it, that's the fun part. It's like detective work, you know? I mean, you, we saw it recently, right, with George Romero's lost film. Yeah, yeah, right? currently so uh, streaming on Shutter. Yeah, exactly, and that was playing the festival circuit for a while, too. Um, so, you know, it's, I think there's an interest in it, and I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if it's that, like, the, the horror franchises that we grew up with, like the Child's Plays and all those, have been just so covered ad nauseum. Sure that now there's like a thirst for like just new territory, you know? And I think that that like the lost film and it's fun to fantasize, like what could have been, you know, like what, what would that have been like if they had made it or what would it have been like if George Romero had directed the miniseries, you know, it, which he was slated to do. Um, 
as as he was Pet Cemetery. So that's like another weird synergy between those two docs for me that like Romero was supposed to be the director for both and then for various reasons did not direct it. Um, I think that's kind of funny, but but yeah, so I don't know. I, I think it's just kind of like good old fashioned research and digging into the stacks and the archives. And um, so, so yeah, I'm excited about this new project. I, I won't give anything away other than I'll, I will say Bigfoot. I'll leave it there. Ooh. So <laughs> I, um, I have like a, a weird connection to trust cinema. I dated a girl back years ago and her grandfather was the writer of Grizzly. Uh, he also was the writer and producer of uh, Dave Days Day of the Animals. There you go. Yeah. And um, his whole thing was is when he released a shark film in the heyday of Jaws. Mm -hmm. uh, it was before Jaws three had come out. So he makes this shark film, releases in the states under the name Great White. Oh, and I he know. Goes well. to, they got sued. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It goes to Japan. He calls it Jaws three, and he got sued. So he ends up just instead of fighting any of the lawsuits he just disappeared what? off the face of the earth he just disappeared and probably for legal purposes i can't say much more outside of that he is still alive oh uh, have more information you just you can't you can't share but you have more information we we could talk off air about we'll about all of that because that's that my bread and butter is 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 eco horror films when nature attacks films i love those oh yeah there's um, so many good ones i know during like exploitation there were yeah. so many just fantastic when nature attacks films based out of uh, Australia. Oh, they were the fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. we're kind of, kind of getting around. I, I am curious. It's something I like to ask people. Um, like you've interviewed so many people at this point, you know, and you've interviewed mm -hmm. major stars. So there've been a time when you've been interviewing someone that you were just absolutely starstruck. Like you're having an interview with someone who is, in your head larger than life well i will say and i wasn't the one sitting in the hot seat actually interviewing him but i was there supporting it they were my interview questions i was you know we were there as sure. a team um but thankfully i wasn't in the hot seat that goes to chris griffiths my co-director on pennywise uh who did a great job it's got to be tim curry you know mm. um and we we were invited to his house so here we are in burbank california and we show up at his house um, with all of our gear and equipment and stuff. And um, they greeted us with like iced coffee and cookies and tea. And I mean, super gracious. And we're in his house, you know, and, and there's like fan art that people had sent him propped up on his piano. And we're just like, you know, so then he comes in and he greets us and we start interviewing him. But it, it's this out of body experience, you know, um, where you're just sitting across from somebody that you've just seen since you were a kid and across the genres. I mean, Home Alone 2, Clue, Legend, Congo, It, you name it, it goes on and on, you know. Um, and so I was glad that I didn't have to be the one to actually ask him questions and sort of engage, because I'm sure I would have been fine, but it, it was a bit of a like, nice to be a fly on the wall and just sort of take that moment in. Um, that that for sure uh, was a probably the most like starstruck I've ever been interview yeah. i i can only imagine he seems like from what i've read and heard apparently he's just a genuinely nice person but he seems the, like his just the way that he carries himself is so much larger than life mm -hmm. um like i can only imagine like having that experience is, is so cool the 
only time I've really ever had an experience where I was kind of floored was at a convention one year. I was in the in the bathroom, and uh, Sid Haig, um, mm. who some people might know from um, probably most notorious now for his roles um, in Rob Zombie's um, mm. his their trilogy, House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects. And I was in the bathroom, and he another person was there in there with me and he like yells out he's like tutti fucking fruity so like i yell back at him and i do it as well and then i i just hear this deep and gravelly voice and he's like you're doing it wrong son it's tutti fucking fruity and i'm just like look up and it's sid Haig. and i was like this like this is like one of the craziest moments of probably <laughs> in my entire life <laughs> my entire life it's wild in the um, even better right <laughs> yeah, it was incredible. And obviously, RIP said, hey, passed away a few years ago. Um, you know, and I think, too, like you meet some of these people there, yeah. especially in the horror industry. It's not like you're meeting someone like Robert Downey Jr. on the street, you know, mm -hmm. who they're so used to having people stop them every five minutes for an autograph or a right. picture. Like in the horror industry, these people are just it's a very different atmosphere. Um, yeah, like sure. regardless of who, of who you meet, whether it's meeting Doug Bradley who played Pinhead or meeting uh, Bill Mosley who played Chop Top in Texas Chancel Massacre three, two, sorry, two, um, like they're just genuinely sweet people and yeah. their stories they tell are always fascinating to me. Yeah. So that's kind of leading me on. If you had to do, you know, I know we've said, you know, you don't want to cover Friday the 13th. Don't want to cover Nightmare on Elm Street. These movies are past. And not because I don't love them, but people have done great work and there's, I just sure. don't know. There's, you know. So if, if you could, if, if every movie was open to you, no one had ever done a documentary on any of these films. Like what would be your go-to that you would be like, this is the movie that I want to do. I want to interview the cast. I want to cover the legacy, the history, uncover secrets. Like what film would that be for you? Man. It'd have to be Jaws. Yeah, I'd want to talk to Spielberg, you know. Get It'd be a the, fascinating conversation. Oh, man. Yeah. I'd want to talk to him about his thoughts on Mac and me. <laughs> oh, man, that is a deep cut. I'd have to, I'd have to go there, you know. Um, but no, I, I, would, I would want to do Jaws. I mean, you know, th that film is so important um, and is really amazing because it was, it was over budget and... and everything was falling apart. And in, in many ways, it's a B movie. I, I yeah. don't think people really talk about Jaws as a B movie because it, 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 it ushered in the summer blockbuster and it, and it became what it became. But I mean, it's a B movie, you know, it is definitely an exploitation film. Yeah. It is a, when nature attacks. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah. And, and it had everything going against it. You know, um, most of the people that were a part of it didn't believe in it. And, um, so it would have to be Jaws, which, you know, isn't maybe a particularly interesting answer because everybody knows Jaws. Um, maybe I should have said Street Trash. I don't know. Hey, you know what? I will 100% support any go-go or any of those that you want to start up to get something made about Street Trash because that movie is not loved enough. I agree. You know, it's cool about the era that we live in now. You know, we have companies like Vinegar Syndrome and Arrow and Shout yeah. Factory and all these other places. Um I should say synapse since they're distributing, um, you know, all these great places that, that are, you know, maybe not doing standalone documentaries, but they're re-releasing these films, making them look in some ways better than they deserve to look. And also releasing them with all the amazing bells and whistles, you know? So like when, when 
Vinegar Syndrome finally did Ice Cream Man. I mean, I, I rewatched mm. and rewatched Clint Howard's interview over and over again because I grew up with that film um, and was so happy to see it get released. Um, so it's cool that that we're in this era where like a lot of these films are getting released and not just the films, but all these like amazing special features and all this deleted footage and uh, interviews with people. Um, so, yeah. Maybe Rumpelstiltskin. I want to see Rumpelstiltskin get a documentary. Ooh, Rumpelstiltskin. We just covered, oh man, what was it? It was on Save Trash Cinema. I should know all the movies we've done at this point. Um, but we just covered the movie that the guy who, the director of Rumpelstiltskin, it was his first Yeah, Mark, Mark Jones, Leprechaun. Leprechaun, there you go. I should know that. We were, I mean, I will say the, the our St. Patty's Day episode, we uh, drank a handle and a half of Jameson during the recording. Um, and uh, uh, we're going to forget some things. A blacked out at a certain point. It was, hey, you know what? It was really funny going back and doing the edit for it when you're like, you just absolutely, you can see the the mental decline. Oh, I'm sure. And like the increased inebriation as you're going <laughs> through. <laughs> that was a, a wild time. But yeah, Rubble Stiltskin, another fantastic. Yeah. Just hidden. My fiance, her favorite is uh, uh, Stuart Gordon's Dolls. Uh, oh, yeah. through blue moon and um yeah. i forgot his name now i'm gonna i'm forgetting everything but yeah you know there's so many great great movies like that um you should look up my article that i did in fangoria i interviewed mark about did Rumpel, you about rumpelstiltskin and he gave me some cool like um behind the scenes photos and stuff to include and um it was funny i I'll, super super quick story i met max grodencheck the actor who played rumpelstiltskin and he's better known for playing i don't remember i'm not a star trek guy but he's like a big star trek person mm -hmm. um and so i went to the star trek convention in boston maybe a decade ago and uh i'm just rolling in in like a t-shirt and jeans you know and everybody's decked out like they're dressed like star trek and here i come rolling in with my original video store poster of rumpelstiltskin you know and like i was like the weird guy out like i was you know like people like what the fuck is that poster you know hell yeah oh his character was Rom r-o-m I think that was his character's name anyway so here i am standing in this like line of 40 people these trekkies who bless them man um and to meet max and he was like man i love doing that movie i would love to do a sequel they set it up to do a sequel i mean if you remember mm -hmm. the ending of rumpelstiltskin you know i think the intention was to do a sequel and anyway check out my article on fangoria it's funny um and, and mark goes into you know talking about how you know because he came from scooby-doo Mm -hmm. from animation and so like yeah with leprechaun and then with rumpelstiltskin his idea was to make this sort of like live action cartoon um and you see it with the cinematography and the, and the humor and the color i mean you know they're both very colorful yeah. films um and he's just an interesting guy um so anyway rumpelstiltskin forever <laughs> fantastic fantastic yeah that's uh you know we were when we were covering one of the pieces of trivia on leprechaun that like was like one of the funniest things was that Mark Jones actually directed one singular episode of the police Academy, the animated series. Did he really? And I was like, what the fuck? There is a police Academy Saturday morning, Saturday morning cartoon. Like it's such an adult, you know, such an adult yeah. movie. Sure. And like, uh, so it's like, that's so weird. But then I had to remind myself that toxic Avenger had a Saturday morning cartoon as well. So yeah, that's right. You know, that's yeah. uh, kind of wrapping around. You've said throughout the interview, you've interviewed people for magazines. You've done all of this different stuff. Like, how do you make these connections? Like, how do you, do you get in contact with someone like Mark Jones? 
Or is that a secret that no, is, or no, you're keeping close to your chest? No, I mean, you know, it, it I think honestly, the, the truthful answer is like, you sort of have to pay your dues in the sense that like, when we did check cemetery, I had nothing under, I had nothing to my name at all. I was just like a, a bozo trying to do this documentary with no experience. And you have to sort of gain the trust of one person and then they sort of vouch for you. And then they sort of vouch for you for the next person. It kind of grows and grows. And then you start to kind of build a bit of a reputation, I guess. Sure. Um, you know, being an archivist, I'm I'm not good at many things, but one of the things I think I am pretty good at is is sort of like being really savvy and and being a good detective and finding people that might know people or just being willing to cold call someone or you know just doing my doing the legwork to find an email address and make a sure. good first impression and not just be like, hey Mark, I want to interview you about Rumpelstiltskin, but like being more personable and and trying to like make people comfortable. Um, and show a genuine interest in them and their work and not, you know, make it just seem like another gig for me. Um, and then, you know, it, it's, it, believe it or not, it's a small community. I mean, especially if you're just situated in horror, you know, I mean, a lot of people know people and I've, I've asked for a lot of favors over the years or introductions, you know, and then that's just like another name in your Rolodex. Um, you know, younger viewers can look up Rolodex. I realize that was a pretty antiquated reference, but but it's another name in your, uh, you know, in your phone book. So <laughs> if you anyone know, knows what a phone book is anymore, yeah, so, look yeah. at me, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm tanking. Um, um, yeah, it's you just gotta sort of be savvy. There's no real like easy answer. Um, and again, that's the part of the thrill is is especially if you're reaching out to somebody about an obscure film that maybe they haven't been asked about in their career or, um, you know, uh, haven't talked much about, they tend to be more open. So whereas yeah. Mark has probably been approached about Leprechaun a lot. Yeah. He kind of has a, a soft spot for it. It's like, man, I really love that movie. I wish it could have done more. Um, you know, and, and he was happy to talk about it. Um, so that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, yeah. but we're we're kind of coming toward towards the end of the interview here, and and I would love to continue talking to you for longer. Uh, obviously, we want to respect your time, though. No, um, man, so I've got yeah, I've got one final and the largest question. Yeah, if you had one trash cinema film to save, what would you save and why? Oh man, okay. So I've been thinking about this. Okay. I'll start by saying my answer would have been this, but it's not because it has really, in a sense, been saved in the last couple of years. Had you asked me that like four years ago, I would have said the brain. I don't know Ooh. if you know the brain. Yeah, of course. 1988's The Brain, Ed Hunt. Um, I love that film. I have driven to fucking Canada to visit the filming locations. Now, I'm in, I'm in New England, so that was probably, oh, I don't know, seven-hour drive. Um, to see the filming locations because I adore that film so much. And I don't know why I, and having talked to Ed over the years, it, it's one of those things where it was a very genuine film. There was no irony in it. Like he really wanted to make this movie about mind control and mm -hmm. somehow got um, David Gale from reanimator to sign on board. And they built this big rubber brain with a mouth and fangs. And it's just so Canadian and it's so charming and it's so funny. And I don't know what it is, man. Some films just like click for us, right? We don't really know why. Yeah. It's, hard to, it's hard to quantify it. But so I would have said The Brain, but Shout Factory has since released that on Blu-ray. Mm. I was lucky enough to produce some special feature stuff for it. Uh, for oh, the that's Blu -ray, incredible. Which was a dream come true. 
Um, so anyway, the answer is not the brain. But what I will say is there's a film called The Legend of Gatorface. Do you know this film? Oh, I do not, but okay, so, you're talking my language now. I would say the, the last four or five years, I've been really interested in horror films and fantasy films and sci-fi films and stuff made for kids and families. Mm -hmm. Right? It's a subgenre that like, I think is really overlooked. Sure. And, um, and I just think, I don't know. I'm just like really interested. So I've like been selling off my, a lot of my VHS and just exclusively collecting those types of films. And now that I'm a dad, I'm a new dad. Right. So like now I'm like, okay, I'm going to show my daughter these films too. Right. So that's how I justify it to my wife. I'm like, sure. I'm investing in her future. The legend of Gatorface. I know the viewers that are listening can't see this, but holy shit! Okay, so to, Hallmark. to describe Hallmark for the, no, <laughs> to no way to describe this cover, it is. You should do it, man. Do it. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna tip. This is like yeah. the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Okay, just imagine there's three children all dressed in like early '90s. I'm assuming early '90s. It looks yeah. early '90s. '90. I forget what '95. Yeah, so just imagine kids wearing 90s outfits. And behind them is both a mixture of an alligator yeah. and a T-Rex that I can't discern if it's if it's claymation or yeah. what. And then, of course, up top, it's got the legend and beautiful script. And then in, like, goopy gator-scaled lettering, it says gator-faced. That is legend of gator fucking the wild. Yeah. And I won't give anything away, but I will say you may or may not see this dinosaur skateboarding in this movie. Holy That's shit. all I'm going to say. So the, the Legend of Gatorface, in all honesty, I could have picked probably six others from this from this subgenre, family films, like family horror fantasy films, um, because they're, they're really overlooked. And I think a lot of them aren't getting re-released and um, they kind of live in this weird, like, place in our brains where like some of us have like picture memories of seeing these movies sure. like, on TV as kids and stuff. And, um, did you, did you ever see the film, the peanut butter solution? Oh yeah, man. I've got, oh. I've got both Blu-ray releases, the Canadian and the recent Severin release. Yeah. Wait, Severin just released it. Holy yeah, shit. Under, I've got under like the a... Severin, under the Severin kids banner. They have like that no separate way. arm called Severin kids where they release stuff. that's like geared this exact kind of content. Um, this is incredible. Yeah, I've got, uh, I just so happen to have a copy that is on DVDR that was ripped directly from a VHS that was in not great condition, just yeah, so that it. I could own. Oh, so that's incredible. Yeah, I definitely need to replace that then. Um, the Legend of Gator Face. The Legend of Gator um, Outside of VHS, is this movie, are, are we able to find it anywhere? Or is this? I bet it's streaming on YouTube. If I had to guess, mm, okay. um, that's a, that's I think a there point. was there might have been a DVD like a limited DVD release in Australia. I've seen a couple pop up on eBay for like a lot of money, like three figures, Ooh. which you know is a different. You know, I I think the the most I've ever spent on a film was mm, like maybe sixty bucks. And okay. it was to get the black and white cut version of Frank Darmont's The Mist, another Stephen oh, King yeah. film. Yeah, 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 when it was first released, they released it where you could watch it in both color and his like his definitive version, which was in black and white. And then once that first print went out, that was it. There was no more of it. Wow. And so I was able to hunt one down and get it for only like 60 bucks. But 
you know, I've got some some weird things in my collection, like uh, signed copies of one of the one of the ones that was gives a gift to me was a signed copy of Murder Set Pieces, um, just a very weird indie horror film that mm -hmm. should not have been made at all. And yeah. part of me wants to think the guy who made it's currently in jail for killing someone. That that could be just a rumor. I'll have to look that up later for fact checking purposes, but I, or you shouldn't uh, look it up. It's better to just not know that. <laughs> yeah, you know, having him and like all the people's like autographs on it, it gives it a, a way more like a terrifying vibe. Oh yeah, you're like sure. man, this thing might be haunted. John, thank you so much. Like I said, um, you've been fantastic. Well, Your work you, is fantastic. We we love all of it. Kind of one final thing. Obviously, I want you to plug anything you've got. Tell tell the audience everything you got, but. Let's focus on Snapper for right now. Yeah. Um, elevator pitch for Snapper, and how can people watch it? Yeah. So at this moment, Snapper, you can buy. I think there are still limited, uh, some limited copies left on VHS at Lunchmeat VHS, Josh Schaefer's company. Um, we did a, a limited run on three different green colors on VHS that sold out in like 10 hours. And then so he repressed it. And so you can go to Lunch Meet VHS to pick up a copy on, on VHS if you want to have a physical copy. Um, and I'm working on getting a, the streaming distribution lined up for Snapper. That should be hopefully lined up this summer. And also any day now, the news will finally drop about a way that you'll be able to get Snapper on Blu-ray as, as a part of a larger package, not just a standalone. That's awesome. So th that news should be dropping any any day now um so come the summer there'll be ways to throw it on when you're lounging by the pond and watching out for your toes making sure the snapping turtles don't get you <laughs> indeed indeed well john we we've kind of covered snapper where we can find it obviously your other work want to say we did look up and to clarify you can watch the pet cemetery doc Unearthed and Untold, The Path to Pet Cemetery. You can watch it right now on Tubi for free. Uh, yeah. Definitely recommend checking that free. out. And, and it's free. Um, as he said, Snapper, physical release. Get it, man. Like, get on it. Physical media should never die. Uh, one day the internet will implode and everyone's going to be pissed off because Netflix isn't around anymore. So exactly. do, do, do a favor and help out some of these creators. And then during on, you know, come summertime, be on the lookout on Screenbox. If you don't already have Screenbox, you should do it. It's a fantastic streaming service. Agreed, and watch yeah. out for Pennywise, the story of it. John, where can people find you on social media? So I'm mostly on Instagram. Um, I am on Twitter. Um, Instagram, my handle is just my name, John Campo Piano. Nothing fancy. Uh, same with Twitter. Um, that's where I do most of my updates. Um, we're in production on a, on a, actually on a Jaws documentary. It's a, a bit of a different angle. It's called Making the Monster. You can check that out on Instagram. There's a Making the Monster page. Uh, we're in the middle of shooting interviews for, and, and um, I'm also a producer, an archive producer on a, a biopic documentary about the life and career of Robert England that's coming out. Um, oh, yeah. Working on the same team with the same team, uh, Dead Mouse Productions, Cult Screenings in the UK, Gary Smart and Chris Griffiths and Adam Evans and, Michael Perez. So, um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of irons in the fire and, uh, stuff slowly trickling out, um, which is great. So follow me on Instagram and you'll keep up with all of it. So. Perfect. Perfect. Well, 
Once again, thank you so much, John, for coming on. Yeah, and guys, everyone listening, go follow John on Instagram and all of his work. You will not be disappointed. And if you've enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and share the hell out of it with your friends, loved ones, and worst of enemies. Honestly, word of mouth is key here, and we aren't beggars. Also, fuck Keith. If you're interested in video games, check out our main podcast, the Spotlight Games Podcast, on all of your favorite streaming services. We also have a YouTube channel, so don't be a heathen and watch us banter about video games there as well. In the meantime, you can follow me at Kid Kamen. You can follow John at... John Campo Piano. You can follow our main podcast at Spot Games Pod on Twitter and Spotlight Games Podcast on Instagram. If you want to be part of the show, whether it be a guest host or have a movie recommendation, you can reach us at savetrashcinema.gmail.com or... Save Trash Cinema on all socials. Remember, fight big box office, save trash cinema.